I think we need to be honest with ourselves about well, what kind of loss in enrollment could we suffer before it would really get uncomfortable. Um, we should also do some back of the envelope calculations on the consequences of retention. Um, I talked to one college president who, um, this was Dennis Hanno at, at Wheaton in Massachusetts, who in essence put a bounty on their first year retention rate. Um, he said, everybody is gonna get a raise when we hit a 90% first year retention rate. And I asked him, did, did you ever get nervous that you're going to have to pay out? And he said, yeah, we've gotten, we've gotten close and it has gotten nervous. But he said, I'm actually not that nervous because I've run the numbers and I know exactly how much revenue is worth for every additional one percentage point increase in retention. With declining matriculations and now we see applications from low income first generation students, um, might simply be a blip, in which case we could hope that, oh, those students will come back to us in 22, 22 and 2023. Um, but I worry that we might actually be seeing the start of new perversely negative trends, just at a time when we start to realize that a declining student pool means we need to expand access. Joining me today in conversation is Dr. Nathan Graw, distinguished teaching professor of the social sciences at Carleton College, where he has served on the faculty since 1999. Many of you have seen or heard about Nathan's work as it relates to the framing of the enrollment cliff, something that's been exacerbated and accelerated in this last year. As we find ourselves beginning to emerge out of lockdowns in our lives and for many of us on our campuses, the big question is, how will we navigate back to what Georgia Tech is framing as return to better? My conversation with Nathan covers many important topics, including his most recent analysis of enrollment trends, issues of shared governance, and how we need to think about work as we come out of this pandemic. Reach out to us at Tybal Education if we can help you build an intentional mindset and process to navigate your challenges over this next year. And now, my conversation with Dr. Nathan Graw. Nathan, it's great to finally get to spend some time with you and meet you. And thank you for being on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. You know, probably around a year and a half ago, I came across a visual. I'm a very visual person. And it showed the movement from red to green of the demographic shifts. And, and when did you put that together, that visual that we'll make available for folks to see, that, that original analysis? So my original work came out in 2018. Um, so that's when the book was published. Yeah, so that's that's the first book that you did here on this topic, which is uh, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education. And you just recently came out with, and in January, the Agile College. And I want to spend a lot of time talking about this, examining how proactive institutions are grappling with demographic shifts. What a timely topic. I think my first question is, have you left your house in the last year? I have. Um, <laughs> so we're in small town Minnesota, where thankfully we've been spared some of the the tougher parts of the pandemic. So um, our campus now is sort of in a hybrid mode and I don't have students in my office, of course, but um, I do meet them in class in a very, very large room with a relatively small number of students. 
And your kids are, are is is are your children also in hybrid learning experiences, or have they been home? Uh, my youngest is in uh, five days a week now, and the middle schooler and high schooler are doing hybrid. Um, though they were home, uh, all of them for several months in the middle there when when things were at their worst. Yeah, you sound optimistic. You have you have an optimistic tone in your voice. What you know, th- there's a there's a lot of challenges in front of us. But as I listen to you, you know, in reading your work, but in speaking with you now, my sense is is, and maybe part of the optimism is, you know, we're we're maybe seeing the beginning of the light at the end of the tunnel. How are things in uh, in Minnesota right now? What's the, what's the mood in Minnesota? I think that's right. As the vaccines roll out and also as we've seen the numbers come way down, um, I think there is optimism. At the same time, um, numbers are still above where they were last summer. I don't think anybody thinks we're out of the woods, but we can sort of imagine the end of the tunnel if we can't see it. There's a question I often ask that might seem obvious, but often leads to really a productive conversation. And that is simply, why should this question of demographics and agility be important to education leaders right now? How, how, would, you, how would you characterize the why uh, for education leaders today? So I would say two things. So um, first, as we come out of the COVID restrictions and move back to something more like normal, Unfortunately, many of us are going to be immediately struck by these more longstanding problems of demographic change. I mean, we've seen demographic change reshaping the composition of our classes now for decades, and we've been grappling with that change and having to rethink who are we and who do we need to be to serve our students. And as we look forward to the next five years, uh, we can anticipate then the echo of the, the birth dearth kicked off by the uh, Great Recession causing us to have to also grapple with declining numbers of prospective students. And so it's just not that far off. And in fact, for the Northeast and the Great Lakes region, the future is already now. They're, they're dealing with that demographic weakness, and we see that. The second reason, though, I would say is because as we grapple with uh, the problems related to the pandemic, we see a lot of overlap in the solutions. Um, in the last year, while there are certainly things that are particular to the pandemic, I think all of us have come to appreciate the incredible value of each and every student, say, in retention, that, that we need to be very, very student-focused right now because our financial um, sustainability depends on it. We, we can't afford to view any of our students as uh, expendable or take the attitude of, well, you know, sometimes students slip through the cracks because it, while, while some institutions have come through this uh, crisis with reasonably strong enrollments, most of us have seen dips that are large enough to really put extreme pressures on the institution. And so I think there is, there's a reason to be thinking about how do we respond to uh, a declining number of students kind of in the long term, even as we try to learn what we can from the last years of experience before we flip the page and leave COVID behind us. What is it that we learned from the last year that will be a critical tool for us going forward? Could you summarize just for those who don't know your work, uh, sort of the the background analysis that prompted this direction, because the original book, you know, my sense is you're building off of your original thesis about the demographic shifts, and now it's really about strategies, right? Ways that you can take it forward. Could you just summarize for folks who don't know your work that the nature of what the, what's what you anticipate coming through these demographic shifts? So the, the basic challenge is that in the financial crisis, families stopped having kids at the same rate. Um, As the fertility rate fell and has continued to fall now for more than a decade, 
it obviously uh, says some tough things about the future for higher ed. But as I was looking at those sort of projections of, of population and then the witchy forecast, the Western Interstate Commission on Higher Education's forecast of high school graduates, I was wondering, but what does this say for college uh, markets. And in particular, when we think about college markets, obviously we have two-year colleges, we have regional four-year institutions, national four-year institutions. Um, they're overlapping markets, but these are distinct sub-markets. Could we somehow parse these forecasts? Um, so what I did was to look at um, recent longitudinal studies of college going to create probability models. What's the probability of a student of a given type, uh, demographic group going to college, and then applied that to the headcount data to make these forecasts for what might we expect to happen with two-year schools, regional four-year schools, elite four-year schools, and so on, if we all just stay on kind of status quo autopilot. Um, and unfortunately, the problem is that because over 70% of students recently have been going on to college, when we have a contraction in the population, that almost necessarily means we're going to have a contraction in the population of college going. And so we can anticipate, um, you know, 10 to 15%, depending on where you are in the country, declines in the number of prospective students in that period right after 2025. Um, obviously harder in the Northeast and the Great Lakes, where because of out-migration and the lack of in-immigration, we're not seeing as many other sources of young people. Um, but throughout the country, we can expect this kind of contraction. But at the same time, we see differences across markets so that the elite institutions seem to be on a sort of upward trend uh, because the number of parents with college degrees has been rising. So we sort of have this situation where we're all in a market together experiencing a decline, while at the same time, there seems to be some reshifting of, of the relative markets uh, that we're all going to have to grapple with. And behind you know, all of this, we still have the changing composition of a population that becomes more and more diverse. And that means pushing into student groups who higher education, frankly, has not uh, served as frequently in the past. And we need to continue to work that problem. Yeah, you wrote about the you know the growing Hispanic population and decreasing other groups, you know, primarily white, and how institutions are being responsive to those changes. Yeah, well, the second book really comes out of Responses to the first book, um, I, I do think we have challenges that we need to acknowledge and, and see and, and name, but I don't think the best response is to then curl up in the fetal position. So I saw right. a Washington Post article where somebody described this coming change as the apocalypse, and I thought, wow, that's an unhelpful analogy. Um, I mean, what do you do with an apocalypse? You, you just take it, I guess. Go be with loved ones. So... I think instead we need to look at this as a distinct challenge, but to recognize we have a lot of smart people on our campuses. And in the last year, we've demonstrated we are capable of extraordinary agility, rethinking our primary missions, rethinking which students we serve, how we serve them. And if we take that attitude, then we can look at this not as you know, a, a, a death knell, but rather as a, a call to action. How do we need to transform ourselves? Yes, in recruitment, but to be honest, if you have shrinking pools, we can't all recruit our ways out of this. But how can we also think about changing academic programming or student support, raise retention, collaborate with other institutions to try to put ourselves in a situation where we serve students more effectively and so we come out of this uh, stronger versions of ourselves? There's a long-term perspective here, and then there's the pandemic. And I'm curious about the pandemic, because it seems to me the pandemic caused in the short-term run, we had a student on the program who said, you know what, if my school doesn't figure out how to do more than just, or my university, how to do more than just throw uh, YouTube videos up, 
and and really create an online experience, then I'm not going to continue. So you know the whole gap year that students may have taken. Have we? Are we facing at least in the short term between now and 2025 almost like a double dip, or is it all sort of morphing into one thing now? That's a great question, and I think it's too soon to say, but but it's certainly the concern that things that we're experiencing right now with declining matriculations and now we see applications from low-income first-generation students um, might simply be a blip, in which case we could hope that, oh, those students will come back to us in 22, 22 and 2023. Um, but I worry that we might actually be seeing the start of new perversely negative trends just at a time when we start to realize that a declining student pool means we need to expand access. Of course, these are the students we need to expand access to reach. Um, I think we can look back to the, um, the Great Recession for uh, a good reason to be concerned about that, where we saw uh, African-American matriculation rates among high school graduates were converging on the national average. We got very, very close there in about 2008. Then the financial crisis hits. Uh, the African-American community was disproportionately hit, at least in terms of wealth, uh, but also in terms of unemployment. And what we've seen since is a regression in the um, matriculation rates in that group so that the gap is reopening. So what seemed at the time as just an unfortunate blip actually began a trend that we are now looking at as, as having more serious consequence. So we really, really, really need to make sure that what we're seeing right now with the differential effects on enrollment don't become trends because that will be um, obviously bad for society, bad for these students, but also bad for our institutions. The other fascinating thing is the equity piece of this also ties to you know, as people were now forced into online, you know, remote learning, not really online education, schools began to say, you know what, we now have socialized our faculty to really work in this world. Maybe we really can create a robust online experience. And then you tie that to the questions of equity and people that do not have the access to technology. That's another factor in this that I'm curious, do you have, you, you might not, it might be too early to say, but do you have any data around that question around populations that don't have access to, you know, to high quality technology? Yes, I don't have access to data that connects those two together, but I think your hypothesis is very reasonable with the data we're seeing from the Common App, from what we're seeing in the National Clearinghouse, where we know that those communities who would be most at risk uh, for technological access are the ones who didn't matriculate as much in the fall. And they're also the groups that we're seeing declines in applications in the Common App data. So it does seem that we are looking at... Um, some changes that we have to be concerned about. At the same time, I think we have learned some things from our new applications of technology. And, you know, institutions should be asking, what's the best of that that we should take forward? And the answer, of course, will differ by institution. So at my school, we are a, a residential liberal arts college, and that's what we're always going to be. Um, so I, I don't anticipate us creating a massive online program, but I hope that we will have conversations about how the use of online technology and maybe even online classes could do some things on the margins to markedly improve the product that we offer. I could Absolutely. imagine 
Yeah, I can imagine, for instance, collaborating uh, with, say, Davidson College, which obviously is halfway around the country, in order to maybe create a critical mass of students so we maybe co-employ somebody in something like Arabic studies where we might feel we can't afford that program on our own, but we can together. Um, we might think about offering courses for students who are taking internships. We're about an hour south of Minneapolis. Um, so students who are doing internships in the, in the Minneapolis area would struggle to simultaneously take a full load of courses here offered the way we traditionally do. But if we think internships are something we really want to support and encourage, might we offer a few online courses for such students so that in one term of their Carlton experience, they could also have an internship experience? I think these are questions we should play with. How can we use this technology to augment our very residential market. And, you know, obviously other institutions are not so focused on the residential and they will have even different and more intensive ways to apply that technology. Prior to the pandemic, there was a presumption you go through, uh, you know, whether you're a commuter student uh, or you're a residential student, you go through the experience and then you enter the job force. And then the job force is the experience also of being able to be face-to-face -face and have... And now we've learned that we can work like this. I mean, I can tell you in the last year, all of our programming, all of our leadership development, all of our consulting is online. And there are things that, that we can do now that we couldn't do before. That we, and it's better. I have more engagement. And as things begin to loosen up, what's going to be fascinating is the workforce is also going to be looking at can we retain this idea that people can still work from home or we hire people from other areas of the country? They don't, we periodically might, might get together. And there's an argument to be made that part of education in the future is going to be teaching people, both young and also people in the current workforce, how to work like this effectively. It might seem obvious, but there's something that people have a sense that they've lost, like there's a certain intimacy that's lost. And what I'm discovering is that you can regain that if you have a certain kind of focus. So, so th that's an area that I'm, I'm going to be really curious to see how schools integrate the idea of you're going to leave this institution and you might enter a workforce where you work like this as a permanent thing. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. As a labor economist, I'm really curious about this as well. Um, obviously, a massive change in how we think about doing work. Um, early on, I wonder if we aren't trading on some capital, social capital that we developed by face-to-face -face interactions. And I think going forward, we're going to see some reversion back toward the mean. But that might mean things like we periodically gather at the office for a group meeting because it is important to maintain those personal connections. But it doesn't necessarily have to mean, and this will be the big question, that we go back to the office every day, five days a week, eight hours a day. And if that's the future where we have more online opportunities mixed with some in-person activities, I think then students need to learn how to ask the question of themselves, when do I need the personal contact? When is that um, really important? And when is it not important? And knowing how to behave in those two environments to get the most out of whether it's the in-person moment, that meeting that you are gathering as a team, or making most use of the, the technology will be an important skill to have to recognize when each of these tools is, is called for. Um, but you're right. I think if work is headed in this direction, then it'll be a, an important part of higher education as well to help students learn about themselves and organizations about how to make that work. You know, I'm curious about for you and your peers, uh, academic peers, what have you been learning in, in teaching and engaging in this world that you think has been beneficial? I feel like the last year has been a lot of relearning 
um, I have observations and I think I, I, I've always known that, but I just maybe wasn't as focused on it. So for instance, thinking about student retention more holistically, uh, my office now, my office hours is like this. Uh, we don't do in-person office hours right now at Carleton. And as a result, some of my students are halfway around the world. Some of them are just halfway around the country, but often in the home. And so I'm having an office hours appointment where it becomes impossible to miss the fact that the reasons that students sometimes struggle are academic sometimes. And that's often where academic minds go. Our professors often think, oh, there's a skills gap here. And there might be. But often that's also intersecting with maybe uh, resource constraints or social capital at home, other limitations. And as we get the window into their home lives through our computers, we're being reminded that retention really is a holistic thing. Um, students bring their whole selves to our institutions, whether online or in person. And so when we think about that retention problem, I've been thinking more and more about how as a faculty member, while I obviously primarily engage with the student's mind, you, you really do have to recognize that the student is wholly in, in your office, wholly in your classroom. And then thinking about, okay, uh, yes, in part, that's how do I pass off to other staff members who are trained in particular things when a student presents a problem. But some of it is also what's my role in engaging these problems that might lie outside the classroom learning context, but it's very much the thing that's making the classroom learning a problem for my student. That's fascinating because if I think back on what the experience is, they come to a small classroom or they come to a large lecture hall and you have no context of their life. Right. And now you have a context of what they're living. And even though administrators and academics have been saying for years that retention is everybody's problem, I think th this sounds like it has made it more clear when they have all their distractions around them and you realize that's that's the environment that, you, that you're learning in. And even when they go back to the classroom, that's the home environment that they have to engage in, that it's opened your eyes up uh, to that in a way that you didn't have before. That's, that's, really that's really great to hear you say that. So encouraging to hear that you bring that optics to it. What has been the biggest challenge for you? as a, as an as a both a researcher but also as more importantly with students and your peers in in working like this i think the biggest challenge is the loss of the personal interaction um i think there is no doubt that when a student i feel very connected to you right now <laughs> that's great but i think my students for instance are are less prone to show up to virtual office hours than they were when it was in person office hours um, I see them less prone to work in groups. Um, in fact, I switched in the fall halfway through the term to requiring all my problem sets be completed by groups because I thought, boy, there's so much learning that happens when we talk to one another. And if the limitations of social distancing are driving students to be more atomistic, then I'll just require that you have to work together in order to make sure that kind of learning together takes place. And so I think it's, you know, it's just been grappling with the things that we all are grappling with in the social distancing context. How do we overcome the necessary restrictions that we're facing right now? Because, you know, being together is really so important to, to the human experience and it's, it is how we learn best. The other area I wanted to explore with you ties to your most recent book. Uh, you know, in, in another interview I read, you talked about resiliency, you know, and resiliency and determination to adapt to a changing environment. And you're sort of speaking my language here, which is how do we help people deal with change as an individual, as a group? And the nature of your data uh, 
is so important because people people often are not willing to make choices in the absence of data. So that's very important. Although I think they should be making choices without complete data, right? They I should agree. be able to make choices with seventy percent of the information yeah. and still make choices. But you know, I think about enrollment management. I think about those those organizations that this is speaking to, and I'm curious. Could you lay out a couple of strategies if somebody saying, you know what, I want to dig into this? Besides buying your book, which I'm going to highly recommend that people do, what are some strategies you think if someone wants to enter this conversation about a, tying together these demographic shifts with the nature of how we want to alter our institutional processes and, and the things we're trying to achieve around retention, as well as uh, the nature of preparing ourselves for potentially some significant turndowns in uh, intuition. I agree with you completely that we we have to get more comfortable at making decisions with some, but not all the data, because we never have all the data. You know, in fact, I, I worry a little bit that some people put too much weight on data that comes along. So, for instance, you know, my my models are projection models based on samples. They have sampling error in there. Um, you know, we, we shouldn't put that much weight on them. The, the bigger picture is if we look across regions, for instance, rather than looking across a single state or city, you can see that, okay, people stopped having kids and that seems to be suggesting we're going to have fewer kids in our pool. Um, how, you know, how much could we afford to just see a drop in, in enrollment? Um, I, I think often we have budgets that are predicated on fictions. Um, when, when you look at the enrollments in the five-year budget, uh, you say, where did those enrollment numbers come from? And the answer is, oh, we kind of backed them out. It was, what do we need in order to make this budget number work? When in fact, obviously, it really works the other way around. We have a certain number of kids coming. And I, I think we need to be honest with ourselves about, well, what kind of loss in enrollment could we suffer before it would really get uncomfortable? Um, we should also do some back-of-the-envelope calculations on the consequences of retention. Um, I talked to one college president who... Um, this was Dennis Hanno at, at Wheaton in Massachusetts, who in essence put a bounty on their first year retention rate. Um, he said, everybody is going to get a raise when we hit a 90% first year retention rate. And I asked him, did, did you ever get nervous that you're going to have to pay out? And he said, yeah, we've gotten, we've gotten close and it has gotten nervous. But he said, I'm actually not that nervous because I've run the numbers and I know exactly how much revenue is worth for every additional one percentage point increase in retention. I think that's a number that institutional leaders should have at their fingertips. What is it worth if we could just increase retention by one point? Or another back of the envelope calculation would be if we could cut our attrition rate, say by 25%, aggressive, but not impossible. How much decline in our pool could we absorb just by keeping around the kids who we've already recruited to the campus once? And instead of taking the attitude that, well, they'll be here for a semester or two, what if we actually thought that we could get eight full semesters at a four-year institution out of, out of the student? I think a lot of people would be surprised to see how an aggressive but not unrealistic change in retention could entirely offset a meaningful decline in pool size. And I think once you get that in your head, you start to reconsider what you're thinking are investments in student success that are just too expensive. Um, things that you maybe have said, well, you know, in the past we decided that wasn't worth it. Okay, well, maybe, maybe that's right. I mean, costs and benefits do change over time. As we enter this new era where scarcity is more the norm, maybe our thinking about that has to shift and we have to start saying, okay, maybe it's worth putting a little bit more emphasis on this area because we can see the returns are so great. 
as I'm listening to you, I just got off a conversation with a member of the region's uh, public board, the senior academic, the senior administrator, and they're talking about some big changes they want to do. And we were having conversations about faculty's role in big change. And, you know, when I think about who should be reading your book, who's in the position to be doing these back of the envelope uh, calculations, it's often the people that are in the administrative side of the house, right? It's the financial vice president and their team. Uh, it's people doing those kind of projections and then presenting them and making choices. But it often feels also that the faculty are either excluded from those and they've got something to contribute uh, or the faculty have a certain disinterest in that piece of, you know, this being a business and a, the business model. You live in the world of economics. So my guess is you get pulled in to these kind of conversations. But what is the faculty role in the nature of dealing with some of these issues? I think it's critical. It's critical in part because faculty sometimes are the primary contact for a student. And so, um, they are the key to retention, though sometimes that's also the custodian in the dorm. Um, we all have students who make connections with us. But it's also true that shared governance has always been a really critical part of successful academic institutions. And some of the things that we need to talk about do necessarily touch on things like the curriculum or programming. Uh, what do we need to emphasize? Do we need to offer new courses? Do we need to reconceive the way that we're packaging existing, existing fields? And you can't do that without the faculty. So I think that shared governance is absolutely essential. And one of the things I've kind of been reflecting on in this last year is we've gone through so much change with the pandemic in a very short amount of time is that the time to invest in shared governance is when you don't need it, right? When, when the crisis hits and you need it, it's kind of too late. If, if you don't have this faith in the system that, okay, we might not always have interests aligned, but I know that you and the administration and I in the faculty have at least some common goals here and that your interests are my best interests as well. If you don't have that when the crisis hits, good luck. Um, you know, and yet we, we did see a large number of institutions do fairly well in this crisis when they did have vibrant shared governance models that generally were functioning. We were able to make massive changes necessarily in, in a matter of weeks or sometimes days um, and, and bring everyone along. So it's, it's of incredible value, but it's, it's something that you have to invest in precisely when you don't think you need it um, so that it's there when you really do. My concern is that the pandemic forced most of us to do these things. And it's almost like human nature that people, when they don't, when they're no longer forced to have to stretch or grow, that they're going to go back to sort of the old ways of doing things. And, you know, my hope, but I think it's a function of how leadership has a long-term vision to say, listen, we're 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 going to build off the strengths of this last year, right? Uh, you know, the, the I, I think what we're fighting in a certain way is the fatigue, right? Uh, my concern is that we're going to give up on all that really excellent learning because this was something we had to do, right? Not because we believed it was the right thing to do. Yeah, and I, I think that is right. change fatigue is is common. So I do worry with you that that. You know, as soon as we get to somewhat normal, then people say, "Okay, leave me alone. Don't don't ask me now to continue to think about how do I need to continue to grow." 
And I think as we ask people to think about growing, we have to also think, and what can we stop asking people to do? Um, in the private sector, I've seen some, um, some industry move to four and a half or four day weeks, for instance. Uh, their argument is if you tell workers, it's only going to be four days a week, you're going to have a three day weekend with obviously there's some times of year when there are crunches and so on, where we have to back off of that and go back to five days a week. But in general, you get your four day week. Workers do adjust to get their work done in, in the time. Um, now, I, I'm not arguing necessarily that institutions should go to a four-day week, but rather just the recognition, you know, this was an industry uh, representative recognizing that if we're going to ask people to do things in fundamentally different hard ways, there's got to be some give somewhere in order to have that resource to draw on. So if we are going to ask faculty to put a, a big emphasis maybe in program redesign so that students can see the connection to life after college more clearly, because the data say that's what care, students care about, Okay, that's great, but that's a lot of work. So what might we be able to say to faculty, our expectations in this area or that area are going to be diminished so that this is all manageable? Uh, we, we can't go forward um, at full steam all the time for an entire decade. That's not possible. You know, to move towards wrapping up this conversation, I've so appreciated engaging with you on this. Uh, what are some uh, final, you know, if you were to say to, folks who are saying, all right, I want to I step into this. What's one thing that would be a, a good first step for folks to be able to explore this question of demographic shifts? What I love about your book is that it, it takes data, but then it puts it in the context of something that to consider doing something with. And that is often the mystery. You're either getting good data and then you got to figure it out yourself or you're putting context around it, around the strategies. And uh, I think that's invaluable. So people should absolutely read your book because I think if nothing else, it's going to open conversations with their peers about how important is this, is this for us. So any, any closing remarks for folks listening to this? Yeah, so two ideas. Um, if you go to the Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education, W-I-C-H-E, uh, webpage, you can see their data projecting high school graduates. And you'll see in the West, things look stronger, but in the Northeast and the Great Lakes region, uh, things look pretty tough. Um, it's a great way to just introduce yourself to the trends that are coming. They also do breakdowns by private and public schools, by different race uh, subgroups. So it's a great way to just get your feet wet on what does my part of the country look like it might be headed toward. And then the second thing I'd say is ask people. I mean, the, the content of my book came from asking people who are in the enrollment management and education leadership field, what are you all doing to address coming demographic change? And I, I heard, you know, great stories, great ideas, not necessarily ideas that I thought, oh, we can do that at Carleton, just like you did it, because context matters, but thought-provoking ideas, things that made me think, huh, okay, maybe I can't do that. But what if we tweaked it this way or adapted it that way? Then we could think about something like that at Carleton. Um, so I, I would just encourage people to have conversations with peers. There are a lot of really interesting things already going on in response to the demographic changes that have been around us for a long time already. So begin conversations and start thinking about how could we mimic. Um, it's, it's one of the oddities of our of our field. In most industries, we keep trade secrets, right? I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing. But in higher education, we just share it for free. Um, so ask, have conversations. So, you know, that's, this begs this next question. What are you working on now? I am working right now on a project thinking about the question of COVID and, and what comes after COVID and how can we leverage this 
as we think toward the demographic changes. I'm also doing some things uh, more close to home with a, a colleague in my department about scholarly production over the life cycle at liberal arts colleges in economics departments. So how have we seen that change across time? So that's completely unrelated to the demographic stuff, but brings me a little bit closer to my economic home. And what brings you joy too. It does. I'm amazing. We went the whole time and none of your children ran into the <laughs> ran into your office. Well, I'm actually at, at work right now. So Oh, you are? I am. So um yeah, we've been we've been testing like heck around here. About one third of us on campus every week get a random test. And I have I have been in the third way more often than not. So in the last week I've had three COVID tests and wow. I do my symptom tracker every morning. Um so it, it's been very good. Our students have been terrific and it's helped us get through this term. That's great. Well thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This is invaluable information for anyone in any role in higher education, whether it's administration academics or trustees to open your eyes up to how to think about taking what we've just been through over this past year and thinking about how to work this into our structures and our strategies. So uh, I'm, uh, let's, let's keep in touch and I want to I stay connected to your work. Very good. Really enjoyed the conversation. Mm-hmm.